Hello, my name is Sue Carrington. I'm a member here at Burlington, and I have the privilege of coming to speak to you this morning. And I wanted to speak to you about this incredible passage that we've just heard read. I think it's one of the most amazing passages in Scripture because we learn that Jesus prayed specifically for us, um, for you and for me. And he looked ahead into all the ages of believers that would come, and he prayed. And if we put this passage into context, this was the night that Jesus was arrested. It was the night of the Last Supper, and in just they'd, they'd had the meal, and he was talking to them, and then he prayed. And it was just hours before he would endure the agony of Gethsemane, when he would say to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And when his sweat would form like beads of blood, as he pleaded with his father to take the cup from him. It was a really, really significant night. It was a night of suffering for Jesus. But in the shadow of Calvary, he prayed to his father and he prayed for us, for all who would come to believe in him. So if you're sitting here this morning and you believe in Jesus, even if you're just starting to think maybe this is true, then you need to know that he prayed this prayer for you. And he prayed it at a time that his um, life on earth was drawing to a close. And, you know, when death is imminent, it tends to focus our minds and we see what was the most important thing. And although for Jesus he knew um, that his death was only going to be temporary and through the way through which eternal life would come, it was also the end of his ministry on earth. And he knew that he wasn't going to be with his disciples in the same way. And so I think it was similar And Bruce Milne puts it like this. He says, as Jesus prays in the shadow of Calvary, we learn what are his deepest, deepest concerns. And if we look at the prayer, we see that his first concern was to bring glory to his father. And that should be our, you know, that is the purpose of our lives, to bring glory to Jesus and to bring glory to God. But then we see also that his deep concern was for his disciples and for us. How valuable must we be to him that the Son of God would cry out to his heavenly Father? You know, he cried out to God and he prayed for us. And it shows us that we are dearly loved and of infinite value to God. He cares deeply about our salvation and the future of our souls. But also, as I want us to look at today, he cared deeply about what happens to us in the world now, uh, before Now, we know that Jesus prays for us Um, in the intercessions this morning. We thought about that and how the Holy Spirit intercedes. And we can read in um, Romans um, how Jesus is at the right hand of God and he's interceding and he's praying for us. But what I think makes the passage so special that we've just heard is that we have Jesus's words. We get to see the heart of God for us and what he wants for us. It is also the longest prayer of Jesus that we have recorded in the Gospels. And we couldn't hope to begin, really, to scratch the surface of all that it says to us. But I wanted to look this morning just at a couple of aspects that we could look at together. And I also wanted to think about it, particularly in relation to some of the things that have been going on in the world around us recently. It was I love sometimes seeing how God brings things together. When I got here this morning, the first song that we sang about God's name being a strong tower, you'll see 
that I'll come back to that. And then when we had the intercessions and we prayed for some of the real trouble spots in the world. I don't know about you, but I've been really troubled and so saddened by so much of what's gone on in the last year alone and the enormity of suffering in the world. Last summer, we really began to become aware of the horror of Islamic State as it swept through Iraq and Syria, inflicting unimaginable um, suffering and torture that often was so painful, you didn't even want to go and think about it, let alone imagine what people were suffering. And actually, um, in 2014, persecution on Christians became more intense in more parts of the world. There was a real increase across the world. Uh, particularly the persecution increased most rapidly in the Middle East um, with the rise of Islamic State, but also in Africa, and particularly there's a new trend towards it in um, sub-Saharan Africa, which is a place which is very dear to my heart. Um, and on Monday, Thursday, we were really reminded of that. You know, it was the day that we come together to remember the Last Supper and um, to remember the night that Jesus prayed. And it was on that day that we had the horrific massacre in Garissa in Kenya of Christian students at a university. According to Christian Solidarity Worldwide, 76% of the world's population now live in countries with restrictions on religious freedom. 76%. We are in the minority, the 24% who have freedom. And we need to think about how we use that freedom, not to take it for granted. And I'm I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. Um, Just thinking again about some of the things that we've seen going on last year with the Ebola crisis in West Africa. And then also something that has been particularly poignant to our family. You know, the crisis that they've had with refugees in the Mediterranean. Our son has been living and working right on the coast, um, southernmost coast of Italy, and they met people coming off those boats um, with nothing. So how does this all relate to the reading that we've heard this morning? Well, the thing that really struck me about this prayer of Jesus, firstly, Jesus prayed it on the eve of the cross when he himself was facing unbearable suffering. Within hours, he would, he would cry out because he was overwhelmed with pain to the point of death. But also, and that's why I wanted us to read that last verse in chapter 16. Um, he had immediately before he prayed, Jesus addressed that issue of suffering. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And we need to hold on to that. But he also said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And having said this, he looked up to heaven and he prayed. And so I think there's a real link between his prayer and with the suffering that we see around us. Now I want to say at the onset that there is no, there are no easy answers to the subject of suffering, whether we're thinking about it on a global scale or whether we're thinking about it in our own lives. And I would not equate anything that is going on in our family right now with the suffering that's happened in other parts of the world. But we as a family are facing a really big issue. It's something I never thought I'd have to face. And if I'm honest right now, I don't know how I'm going to get through But I know these two things. I know that Jesus said, take heart, I've overcome the world. And I know that he prayed for me. And I know that I can trust him. And they're the things that I hold on to.
and things that I want us to sort of think about today. So I just want to draw out some of the things that Jesus says in this prayer to see what we can learn about how we respond to suffering and the priorities of Jesus for our lives. And the first thing that um, Jesus does is he looks up to heaven and he says, Father. And I think sometimes, particularly in the West, we can get so used to referring to God as our Father that we can forget just how radical that was in first century Palestine to call the almighty, holy creator God, Father. And the term Jesus uses in Aramaic is that wonderful word, Abba. It's a word that I love. It's an intimate, deeply personal word for Father. It translates similarly to Daddy. It gives us an image of a small child with their father, a relationship of love and trust and intimacy. And we see this intimacy then at the center of our Godhead in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. There are 21 prayers recorded in the Gospels of of uh, that Jesus said. In every one of those prayers, he called God Abba. He prayed to his Father. But then even more amazingly, when he gave us the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray to God as our Father. And Michael Green puts it like this. He says... Jesus alone, who had that intimacy or relationship with God as his dear daddy, gives his true disciples the right to come in on the same level of intimacy and call God Abba. Amazing. That we can call the creator God Abba, our father. And then he went on to say something which I found really profound. He said this. He said the whole gospel could be contained in that one word, Abba. And, you know, if you only take one thing away from what I say this morning, I'd really like you to take that, that the whole gospel, everything we believe, can be summarized in the word Abba, the Father God who longs to know his children and to love them and to keep them close to us. And sometimes it's really hard to give an answer to people about our faith, but if we just come back to that idea of Abba. So we've been given the right to call to be called children of God. And in a world full of insecurity and pain, when we often don't have the answers we're searching for, we have that secure identity, and it's an anchor for our souls. We are loved and we are held by our Father God. John Sentmu, the Archbishop of York, um, was speaking recently about the increasing tide of religious violence and persecution. And he said this, he said, Christians have no facile answers to life's heartbreaking questions, but... In their distress, they turned to Jesus because he suffered with us and for us. And there's an incident in the Bible that's always intrigued me right from when I was young. I found it puzzling, and I think it illustrates some of what we're thinking about. And it was when Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus. Um, He knew that he was about to demonstrate his power over death by raising Lazarus to life. He had delayed his return specifically so he could show his power. But this is what we read in the Bible, that when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come out along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then we have that shortest verse of the Bible. Jesus wept. Why? Why did he weep that day? Well, one commentator suggests this. He says that in Mary's grief... Jesus sees and feels the misery of the whole human race. 
and he burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death itself that was the object of his wrath. Because when sin came into the world, so did death and so did decay and so did the suffering that we see. And Jesus burned with rage against it. It points to Jesus weeping with us for the suffering of this world. He knows it's only temporary. He can see beyond where we are to the eternal life we're promised, but he still weeps with us. And we read, there's a beautiful, beautiful verse in Psalms. It says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in a bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. God's not indifferent to the suffering in this world. He is a compassionate father. He is Abba, who weeps for the suffering of his children, and he keeps track of their tears. Every tear that we shed is noticed by God. They're not in vain, and he's with us as we cry. So when we're faced with suffering, whether it's in our own lives or whether it's with the horror that we see happening around us, When we don't have the answers and we're struggling to understand, we can hold on to this truth, that God is with us. And more than that, he has overcome the world. Ultimately, suffering will end. We will have eternal life because of what Jesus did on the cross. But we have the comfort of a heavenly father with us now. And when we hear about suffering of Christians around the world, when we hear about the earthquake in Nepal, when we hear about um, crisis with refugees, we can pray. We can pray for those who are suffering, uh, that they will know the comfort and hope of Father God. If we come back now to this prayer of Jesus and just look at another one of his concerns, he prays for the protection of his disciples. And he says, Holy Father... There's that word again, Abba. Protect them by the power of your name. And then later he says this. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one now. Jesus was preparing to physically leave the world, but his disciples were staying behind to complete the work he'd given them. And we continue that work today. Jesus doesn't want us out of the world. He wants us here to be his hands and feet, to reach out to a world that desperately needs to know him. And he says, if you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them. But at the same time, it shows that we need to take the issue of spiritual warfare seriously. We need to think about praying for protection. We read in Peter, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion. Um, resist him, stand firm in the faith, because you know your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And uh, Bruce Milne, a commentator, says this, the world and the devil are daunting enemies, and Jesus' concern about them in prayer is a summons to vigilance and prayer. We need to be vigilant. We need to pray for ourselves for protection. We need to pray for each other, particularly when we're going through hard times. When we're suffering, we need someone to stand in the gap for us and pray. We need to pray for our churches. Um, I think we need to be really committed to praying for Christians within the persecuted church, that they would be protected. We do need to be alert. We need to keep ourselves focused on being close to God. 
But this prayer gives us a confidence as well. We have confidence in the security that we have in Jesus. He does warn us that we will have trials, but he promises us he's overcome them. And you know, he's prayed for us. He prayed for our protection in this prayer. If God answers our prayers, if God hears our prayers, how much more will he answer Jesus' prayer? You know, his prayer prevails and we can really depend on that. And I just wanted also to think about when Jesus says protection in the power of God's name. Way back in the Old Testament, God's name is first revealed as I am. And then gradually we are given more names for God and they each reveal different aspects of his character. But in a way, the final revelation of God's name and character comes in Jesus. And what does he say? He tells us to call him Abba, a loving father. And that those two concepts, holy, reminds us that he is God Almighty. But father, he's our loving father. We are protected by, by our father. And there's that beautiful image in the Psalms that a friend reminded me of recently, of a hen with its wings out and the young, the young chicks beneath her wing protected. And we have that protection. Um, we can trust in the name of God to protect us from evil. And because of that, we can stand firm and resist the devil, even in times of suffering. And this is the verse that I love that was in the song we sang when we first got here. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The last thing that I wanted to think about in this prayer of Jesus is when he prays specifically for us um, and what we can learn for us about that. And we see that his overwhelming concern is unity. He prays that we, he says... I in them and you in me, may they be in complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. I think that's really significant. Let the world know and have loved them even as you have loved me. We're thinking about unity in terms of our relationship with God and also with each other. Our role here on earth is to complete the work of Jesus in showing the world that God loves them. And that he longs for a relationship with them. That he longs to be Abba to all of us. I don't think we can overestimate how important unity is. Because what we've read tells us that it's through our unity, through our relationship with God, but also our unity with each other, that the world will see God. That's, that's a huge thing. Um, one commentator puts it like this, which I find really challenging. The church will be a visible revelation of the unseen father and his love. Just take a moment to think about that. The church will be a visible revelation of the unseen father and his love. Our relationship with God, how we treat each other, how we are in our families, how we are at work, how we react with other churches, all has, um, all has a, a bearing. It's how the world will see God. And Jesus talked about this earlier in John. He said, your love, when he was talking to the disciples, your love for one another will prove to the world you are my disciples. It is an awesome responsibility. It is not one that we could hope to do in our own strength. But if we go back and look at that verse again, it says this. It says, I in them 
and you in me. And it comes back to a heart of relationship. Jesus, by his spirit, living within us. It is only in relationship with Jesus, by his spirit living in us, by his love filling us, that we can hope to live in this way. It's all about relationship. And that same relationship that we see at the center of God, you know, the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I in them and you in me. So our priority must always be to keep going back to God, to be filled with his love so that then we can express that love to each other and to our neighbors. Paul in Ephesians says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. In this way, people will see God. And, you know, I think a really powerful example of when we love each other, people seeing God, came during the the Ebola crisis uh, when Christian medics went out and put themselves in harm's way so that they could nurse and so that they could love and so that they could care. And I think that really spoke powerfully of how God loves and it showed God's love to the people, not just in, uh, in the African countries, but around the world. It made a point. I just wanted also to think this morning about this call to unity and um, the persecuted church and how we need to stand with our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church. How do we respond? We need to take a stand. You know, I said earlier about how we live in the minority. 24% of the world's population has religious freedom. We need to use that freedom wisely. Mervyn Thomas of Christian Solidarity Worldwide was expressing really the point of their existence um, as charity, but it says it really well. He said, our purpose is to amplify the cries of the persecuted church so the world can no longer ignore them. And Justin Welby has spoken out a lot recently on this issue, and he said, silence is not an option. We need to use our freedom wisely We need to use our freedom to speak out on behalf of persecuted Christians and actually for religious freedom. We need to be well informed. Um, I'm sure most of you are. There are so many organizations that seek to support and campaign on behalf of the persecuted church. Open Doors, Christian Solidarity Worldwide. There's the recently formed Religious Liberty Commission. They all provide information about how we can be involved by campaigning, by lobbying our MPs. There's currently a campaign to write to uh, all the new MPs in Westminster to ask them to promote religious freedom. uh, We can sign petitions, and often you can contact embassies on specific issues that do make a difference. We need to pray. We have Jesus' example of prayer. We need to pray individually and corporately. You know, last summer we had a day of prayer as a church in response to some of the um, things that were happening with Islamic State. There is an international day of prayer for the persecuted church. It's held each November. This year it will be held on the 15th of November. And we can get involved in that and make our voices heard. Samaritan's Purse is holding a national day of prayer and worship for Christians in the Middle East uh, on the 6th of June. 
Organisations like Open Doors publish regular prayer alerts so that you can be part of praying for specific issues. And we can pray, as Jesus does, for their protection from evil, for strength, and that they would know the peace that Jesus promised when he said, I've told you these things, that you might have peace. And he said, I've overcome the world. And we can thank God that no matter how dark it gets, the darkness will never extinguish the light. We can also write to persecuted Christians. We can express our love and support in that way. Some of us can go to these places to give support. We can give financially. And we can also thank God for signs of hope. Um, And I think particularly interestingly, given what... um, what we've been talking about this morning with unity, Open Doors has recently reported that there has never been so much unity amongst the church in the Middle East as there is now, and that in the face of this awful persecution, historic divides within the church in the Middle East have been healed, and they're coming together in a new way. And actually, they're beginning to come together with some of the Muslims in those countries too, who have been appalled by what's happened, and that there's a real chance for God's love to be um, witnessed in a new way in those places. So we need to make unity a priority. We need to prioritize our relationship with God to keep close to him, to prioritize our relationships with each other. We need to seek unity to be really careful what we say about other churches and other Christians uh, because the world really notices when, when, when we moan or criticize or judge. We need to keep coming back to the Father heart of God, to Abba, who longs for his children to have a relationship with him and for us to reach out to the world around us to show them the relationship that they can have. When we live in relationship with God and with each other, we can be the visible revelation of God to the world around us. When we suffer hardships or when we see the suffering of the world around us, we can be sure that we are loved and held by Abba, who weeps with us. Above all, we know that Jesus has prayed for us and that his prayer will prevail. God will answer Jesus' prayer. And so I wanted to finish this morning by showing you a clip that many of you have probably seen before, but I only came to recently. It's taken from the 1992 Olympics. Um, and the, the British athlete, Derek Redmond. He was a British Olympic athlete. He was tipped for gold. He was running the 400 meters when suddenly his hamstring muscle ruptured and he fell to the ground in agony. But then he stood up and limping, he tried to complete the race. He was clearly in agony and struggling, but determined to finish. When out of the crowd came a man, a tall man, who pushed past security and he put his arm around Derek. He was Derek's father. And he said to him, lean on me. And if you watch the clip really closely, you'll see that initially Derek goes to push his dad away. But then he realizes that actually he needs him. And he throws his arm around his father. And together they finish the race. Um... It's a powerful example of how God love, of how God loves us. And, um, it's just a really moving illustration of a father's love. 
And you know, how much more does our Father in heaven long to love us and carry us, especially when we are hurting? We have to let him. We have to allow him to. And we need to take this message of a loving father to a broken and hurting world. So as you watch the clip, just think back to that, um, to that saying about how the entire gospel can be summed up in the word Abba and what it means to have a loving father. Thank you for listening. <laughs>